Last week, we saw John come immediately to the scene after the introduction. The prologue is over. Here comes John. Am I a bell? <laughs> I feel like a bell. <laughs> I'm ringing. <laughs> All right. Um, we saw him come to the scene. He comes onto the scene. All right. The first person is John, and we're not surprised by that. He is the one that introduces the good news that the Messiah has come. We said it's kind of like the opening scene of a play when the curtain opens and the play begins. The narrator has told us everything we need to know about the story, right? That's verses 1 through 18. And now the story begins. And who's up first? John the Baptist. And he is the one who is supposed to introduce Jesus to us. And he says, here he is, the Messiah has come. Now, would you consider the news that John the Baptist has to give, would you consider that big news? Would you consider that great news? Would you consider that something worth witnessing about, worth telling about, worth proclaiming? And I say that understanding that there is no other greater news than that. You can't even compare it with anything. This is the greatest news of all time ever. There will never be greater news than this. The Messiah has come. And we all agree, right? This is the greatest news ever. The question is, for all of us, is how do we know we have heard the good news? Isn't that important to us this morning? If there is, if there is one good news in all the world, right? The Messiah has come. How do we know that we have heard the good news? How do we know that we have believed in the good news? How do we know? Is there any indication that maybe we have heard and believed and received the good news? And one of the greatest indications is whether you have become a disciple. A disciple is simply someone who responds to faith, in faith, to the testimony of Jesus. They hear the good news and they believe it. And what is born from that is a disciple. You can't be a Christian, a believer, and not be a disciple. It's impossible. They go hand in hand. A disciple is a believer, a believer is a disciple. An unbeliever is not a disciple. A believer is a disciple. Now, we don't always act that way. We don't always act like a disciple, but we are a disciple if you're a believer because you're a follower of Jesus. Today, we're going to look at examples of those who became disciples. And we're going to look at them and find what can we learn about the marks of discipleship. They're going to give us an understanding of what discipleship looks like. You might say, in fact, that these are case studies of discipleship. And I think that's really what John, the author of this gospel, is trying to convey to us. I think he's trying to convey to us that these are case studies of discipleship. And we need to learn what discipleship looks like. 
in the calling of the first disciples. And so I want to begin by asking the question, why does this even matter? Why do we need to understand what discipleship looks like? And one of the reasons I think this is so important in our day and age is there are many, many, many who profess to be Christians but are not disciples of Jesus. They confess to be disciples of Jesus, but their lives contradict everything they claim. They are not who they claim to be. And they need to be confronted with the reality, you and I need to be confronted with the reality of what does discipleship look like? What does it mean to be a disciple? We need to examine our lives and ask ourselves, am I living as a disciple of Jesus? We need to know what it's all about. Some of us are disciples of really good things, aren't we? And so we think because we're disciples of good things that we are automatically a disciple of Jesus. Maybe we are really good at understanding how the family works together. Maybe we're really good at understanding politics. Maybe we're really good at understanding all these things. And those things aren't bad. Those things are absolutely essential. But it doesn't make you a disciple of Jesus. If you are good at good things, and if you understand good things, and if you're helping people, it doesn't make you a disciple of Jesus. Not only that, but there is always this great danger, a real genuine danger out there of disciples forgetting who Jesus is and failing to live who they truly are as disciples of Jesus. You see, see, the world is constantly suppressing the truth, isn't it? The world is constantly suppressing the truth. And our hearts are prone to wander. And you know what that means? <laughs> that means that we are constantly in danger of losing sight of Jesus. And when I say forget Jesus, what I mean is that we are no longer bowing to him as our Lord. We no longer see him as our master and as our king and love to obey his commands. Our, our, our joy and delight in Jesus starts to wane, doesn't it? And other things become more delightful. Other things we become more passionate about. Other things we start loving more than Jesus. Right? That's what it means to forget Jesus. And when we do, we fail to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. And when we are living that way, we need to ask ourselves, what is wrong? And so as we begin to look at the marks of discipleship, the first thing we see here is that a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. We see that in verse 35 through 37, when John the Baptist identifies Jesus to two of his disciples. Now, these were John the Baptist's disciples, right? Andrew, and we're told someone else. They immediately follow him. Now, you have to try to imagine the scene in verse 35 through 37. John is gathered. This is an amazing scene. John is gathered with two of his disciples. And he's probably teaching them. That's what he does, right? And he undoubtedly spent much time teaching them. He has is, he is, he is given so much of his time, so much of his energy, so much of his life to training these disciples. And so we imagine that's probably what's going on here as well. We know for sure that one of them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, but the other's name is not mentioned. And just, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, <laughs> that the other one's not mentioned. And the likely reason is 
because the other one is John, the author of the gospel. We don't know that for sure, but John never mentions his name in the gospel. He never does. And so it would have been typical of John to say the other disciple here, <laughs> if it was John. It actually helps us because then it keeps us from being confused with John the Baptist, right? But notice what happens. Jesus suddenly walks by them. And as he walks by, John the Baptist gets a glimpse of him. He sees him. And what does he do? He turns his attention to Jesus. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. What an incredible moment. Can you just imagine? Behold, the Lamb of God. And he identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God so that his disciples would follow him. So that his disciples would make the connection that this is the one I've been talking about. This is the one I've been preparing you for. This is the one that I am all about. This is the one I've taught you about. This is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. Now what does it mean to be the Lamb of God? John the Baptist has already mentioned that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We looked at that last week. And so here he says the same thing again, but this time a little abbreviated, right? The Lamb of God. What does that mean? And the first thing it means is that he is sinless. He is perfect. He is without fault. He is the perfect one to deliver us from our sin. He is the perfect one to save us, right? That's what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God. But it also means that he's going to be the one who brings victory over our enemies. Now, they would have not understood fully what that means, right, as much as we do. You might say he speaks better than he knows, right? <laughs> right? Because it's not until after his death that the understanding of what Jesus did is fully grasped. But we understand more fully, don't we, that to be the Lamb of God means that he would become the sacrifice that would atone for sin. In other words, he would defeat our greatest enemy. He would bring us into favor with God. Every enemy would be defeated by our great and mighty Savior. And so John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. Right? Here he is. That one sentence is, is pregnant with truth about who Jesus is. Right? And how do they respond? They say, They follow him. They were ready, they were prepared for this Jesus to come by. Now you might say here, well, it doesn't really look like they're permanently following Jesus. Right? It looks like they're just following him for a short time. Because if you look at the passage, that's actually kind of what happens here. Um, later on, apparently they will follow him um, more fully, but here it's just a short time. It appears like, I mean, we're not given a lot of information but I think when we read John, we need to understand that he has different levels of meaning with his words that he gives. You can't read all of the authors this way, but John has different levels of meanings. And I think it's really important that we understand what he's trying to convey with the language that he uses. And so I think there is a sense where just in the most mundane way of 
following Jesus, yes, they're following him for the first time. They're beginning to follow him uh, after John points him out. But I think we're to understand this deeper. I think we're to understand John is telling us that disciples are those who follow Jesus in the most concrete way we could imagine, that they follow him completely, that they turn to him, their whole lives are turned in a different direction, and they follow him. And here's a model of what it looks like to be a disciple. What do you think John is thinking at this time? Do you think he's bummed out? Do you think he's annoyed at the fact that he's losing his disciples or beginning to lose his disciples, I should say? Well, I want to remind you that the very purpose of John was to lead people to the coming one than to fade into the background. Listen to what John says in John 3, verse 27 through 30. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. If that is John's purpose, and if that's his purpose, it's the right purpose. If that's his purpose, then this is success. <laughs> this is the greatest success imaginable. This is going to bring him the greatest joy. If his heart is right, that they are following Jesus. It isn't about John. It's always been about Jesus. And when they follow Jesus, then John is happy. John rejoices. It's a good thing. It's success. How does Jesus respond? Does he say, you're following me? Good. He <laughs> say, that's great. You're following me. That's all that matters, you know. Just come after me and follow me. What does he say here? Well, he probes deeper into their motivation, doesn't he? As they begin to follow, he turns to them. And these are the first recorded words of Jesus, aren't they? In the gospel. And he asks, what are you seeking? He doesn't say, that's awesome, you raised your hand. That's awesome, you prayed a prayer. As if that in itself were commendable. But I believe Jesus wants them to think more fully about what they are doing. He wants them to understand what are they doing. You have come to Jesus and are outwardly following him, but what are you really doing? What are you really seeking? What are you really after? And this is a good question for every one of us to ask. What are we really seeking? How many people think Jesus, following Jesus, is about getting something that they need? How many people think it's going to free them from difficulties and free them from struggles? How many people are following Jesus so that they can have some kind of authority or some kind of power or prestige in this life or protection? Well, Jesus doesn't promise any of these, does he? Rather, what God gives us is Jesus. That's what he gives us. Charles Spurgeon describes Jesus himself as the source of all blessings for those who follow him. Listen to what he says. Are you seeking pardon? You shall find it in me. Are you seeking peace? I will give you rest. Are you seeking purity? I will take away your sin. A new heart I will give you, and a right spirit will I put within you. 
What are you seeking? Some solid resting place for your soul upon the earth and a glorious hope for yourself in heaven? Whatever you seek, it is here. It's in Jesus. In verse 43 through 44, a little bit further on, Jesus approaches Philip and doesn't request him to follow him, nor does he beg him to follow him, but simply demands for Philip to follow him. Following Jesus is not optional. When we see Jesus, when we hear Jesus, we are commanded to follow him. The right response is to follow Jesus, and you will follow him if you see him. A disciple is someone who also learns from Jesus. And I want us to connect learning from Jesus with following Jesus. These things really go hand in hand. To follow Jesus is to learn from Jesus. To learn from Jesus is to follow Jesus, right? To learn from Jesus and to obey Jesus is to follow Jesus. If you're not learning and obeying Jesus, then you're not following him. All right, so these things really go hand in hand. And we see that in verse 38. After beginning to follow Jesus, Andrew and the other disciple identified Jesus as a rabbi. And it tells us right here in parenthesis, doesn't it, what rabbi means. Rabbi means teacher. And I want us to think about for a second, what might they have understood when they heard the word teacher? And someone wrote this. In ancient Israel, religious teachers gathered disciples who would follow them about, usually walking behind them, serving them and listening to their teaching. But Jesus is not just a teacher, is he? He's not just another teacher. He is the teacher par excellence, right? <laughs> he is the teacher. You might think, well, this is great for them, but we can't follow Jesus as the disciples did. Well, that's true of them, but it's not true of us in the same way. And I want you to understand that that is not true at all. <laughs> That we too, just like the disciples did, are to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him. That's what it means to be a disciple. And how do we sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him? Well, the same way the disciples did. From hearing the voice of Jesus. And where do we hear the voice of Jesus? By reading his word. That's where we hear the, wor the words, the voice of Jesus. is the word of God. So if you're not reading the word of God then you can't be his disciple. And we are called to sit at his feet just like the disciples did and to learn from him. He has left us, graciously left us his words. He still speaks to us. and We still are to listen. And we have additional help today, don't we, from the Holy Spirit who teaches us as we study the Bible, what it says, who opens up our minds and our ears to understand what it says. Praise God. We have even more help than the disciples did. This means you're not merely or even primarily to be taught by your pastor, nor your friends, and those are very important. Don't get me wrong. But your primary teacher, your daily teacher, must be Jesus Christ. And this is the goal of preaching. This is the goal of good preaching. This is the goal of good teaching. This is the goal of people who care for you and love you is they are going to teach you how to learn from the true teacher. 
We want you to be able to daily learn from the true teacher who is Jesus. That's what good teaching does, just like John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God, follow him. Right? That is so important that you understand that. If you continue to come to church and continue to be taught and learn good things, that's great. We praise God for that. But if it's not training you and teaching you to go home and to learn from Jesus yourself, then you're missing everything. You're not getting it. You're failing to be a disciple of Jesus. I want you to become a great student of Jesus and to be able to learn and grow yourself. By the way, this is what Jesus meant in Matthew 23, verse 10, when he said, Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Jesus isn't saying we can't call people teachers, right? <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, don't ever call your pastor your teacher, right? That's not the point. The point is, he's saying, you really ultimately only have one teacher. You have under shepherds, but you have one true shepherd, right? And that is Jesus. You have one teacher, and that's Jesus. And he better be your teacher, and you better be a student. What does it mean to follow Jesus as your teacher? It means to continually come under the teaching of God's word. It means to continually grow in your understanding of God and his word. It means to continually allow for your ideas of God in life to be challenged and even changed by his word. This is what repentance is, and it's not a bad word, it's a good word. Praise God that we are continually rebuked and, and, and continually challenged by scriptures, ideas, and our thoughts of God. That's a good thing. If we don't continually repent and turn from him, he's not our teacher. We're not learning from him. We need to continually be changed, continually be rebuked. Because that's what God's word calls us to do. And obey him. We are to continue to obey him and to bow to him as Lord. Do you think of him and call him your teacher? Do you call him rabbi? Do you sit at his feet and learn from him? The early church did. In Acts 2, verse 42, we read, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that's exactly what we must do. Donald Gray Barnhouse explains it this way. What is the food that makes our faith strong? The written word of God. What is the foundation of our hope? The written word of God. What is the cause of our obedience and the direct directive of our action? The written word of God. A disciple is also someone who not only follows Jesus and learns from Jesus, but someone who remains with Jesus. And we see this in verse 39 through 40. After Andrew asked Jesus, where are you staying? Jesus responds positively by inviting him to come and see. Right? He says, come and you will see. Jesus, what he's saying there is basically taking them up on their request. He's offering them to come and see. Now, this is a great way to witness, by the way. This is a great way to witness. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever done this, but one of the ways I like to talk to people is to tell them to come and see. And what I mean by that is read the Bible for yourself. You see, if the God of the Bible is true, then he's going to be greater than all things, right? Otherwise, he's not God, <laughs> right? 
And so I say, come and see. Read the Bible for yourself. If it's true, then God, who is described in this word, is going to be greater than all things. And if it's true, then you better follow him. And you better repent and turn to him and be saved. Right? So come and see is a great way to witness. So they take up Jesus and his offer, and they stayed with him that day. And by the way, the word for stayed there is the same word for remain and the same word for abide. They ab- were abiding with Jesus. They were remaining with Jesus. Now, obviously, once again, the word remaining there is not permanent remaining, right? But once again, we are to look at, a, at the depth of what that word means. What is John trying to convey? And once again, I think he's trying to show us what discipleship looks like. Discipleship remains with Jesus. To remain with Jesus means to continually be taught by the Lord through his word and to continually follow him in repentance and obedience. From the start of our Christian faith to the end of our life on earth, it is essential that we continually learn from the Lord and we are continually repenting and turning to him and obeying him and serving him and worshiping him. We are to learn this truth not once, not twice, but continually, over and over again, so we don't forget who Jesus is, and we can follow him. Jesus says this in John 8, verse 31 through 32, where we read, If you abide in my word, abide is the same word for remain, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A disciple is also someone who tells others about Jesus. It's not surprising that when the disciples saw Jesus for the first time, that it is the typical response for them to go and tell others what they found. What else would they do? (laughs) This is the greatest news in all the world, right? What else would they do but tell them? So after being introduced to Jesus by John the Baptist, Andrew in turn goes out and tells Simon Peter about Jesus in verse 41. And did you notice something about Andrew here? How he's identified? He's identified as Simon Peter's brother. Well, that's interesting. Now, when we think of Andrew, we often probably think of his identity with the three others, Peter, James, and John. He's often listed with them. Yet Andrew is not very well known compared to them, is he? And he's likely mentioned as Peter's brother because Peter was so well known. And people who heard Peter would have known exactly who you're talking about. So you're Peter's brother, Andrew, (laughs) right? Kind of like me being called Joshua's brother, right? Imagine being known as someone's brother. And what is significant for us about the lesser-known Andrew is that the first thing we are told that he does is he introduces Simon to Christ. He comes to him and says, I found the Messiah. (laughs) And leading others to Jesus is, in fact, the pattern we see in Andrew's life. The feeding of the 5,000, Andrew brought the boy with five barley loaves and two fish to Jesus. Or 
Uh, right before the death of Jesus, Andrew and Philip brought a group of Greeks to Jesus who wanted to meet the Lord. What does this tell us about Andrew? What does this tell us about the lesser-known Andrew? Well, it tells us his zeal for Jesus indicates that he has very likely truly met Jesus. When someone is that passionate about telling others about Jesus, it indicates that they actually have seen Jesus, that they believe in Jesus, that they know Jesus. Because how could you do otherwise? If you love someone, right, when you see Jesus, you'll want to tell others. And so we can also mistakenly think much of Peter because of his larger-than-life personality and think less of Andrew because he seems so less prolific, right? Now, Peter was certainly a great example, and we need to follow his example. Praise God for him. But we must not fail to understand the importance and example of Andrew and his gifts. In some ways, without Andrew and his gifts, there would be no Peter, right? We need to understand that our highest purpose, our greatest privilege, is to bear witness to Jesus. That is not a lesser ministry, is it? We should be zealous to bring people to Christ. Like Andrew and Peter in verse 45 through 46, Philip tells Nathaniel about Jesus. And if you look at those words there, you will understand that there's some skepticism, isn't there, from Nathaniel? He's like, is there anything good that can come from Nazareth? He's a little prejudiced, apparently. It's a small town, nothing significant about it. And what is the best antidote for skepticism? Well, come and see. Notice the same words there. Come and see. Find out for yourself. Come to Jesus. And this is not some mystical experience. This is a call to read your Bibles, to see him for who he is. Alexander McLaren writes this about Philip. This man, before he was four and twenty hours a disciple, meaning 24 hours, had made another. Some of you have been disciples for as many years and have never even tried to make one. Wow. People like Andrew and Philip are great blessings to the church. Those who are not seeking the center of attention are great blessings. Those who do not resent laboring outside of the limelight are a great blessing. Those who are pleased to do whatever they can with what God has given them are a great blessing. Those who love to simply proclaim Christ are a great blessing to the church. So don't be discouraged if you're not as much like Peter and more like Andrew or Philip. Bringing people to the Lord is the highest calling and greatest privilege we can have. A disciple is someone who is in the process of being changed by Jesus to do his will. Jesus gives Peter another name. And we need to ask, why in the world does Jesus do that? And the reason he does that is because it indicates that God will change him into a new person that fits that new identity. And we see that in verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. If you remember, in the Old Testament, there are multiple times where God changes people's names. 
And what that does is indicate that God has a plan for them that he is going to accomplish through them, even though it seems impossible that this could ever be true of them because their identity doesn't immediately fit or match the new name they're given, right? We see this with Abram, who is called Abraham, and Jacob, who is called Israel, right? If that's the case, then what does it mean that Jesus changed Peter's name from Simon to Cephas, or Peter? Now, we probably already know that Peter means rock, right? And this name means that he's going to play a foundational role in the establishment of the church. The gospel message he is going to give is going to be foundational for the stability and the building up and the strength of the church. And God is going to use Peter as a means to do that. And this is almost funny, isn't it, when we hear this? God is going to use Peter as a foundational stone for the church? Of all people, Peter? The most unstable man you'd ever meet in your life, Peter? Sometimes he's doing the right thing, you know, just like a loud mouth will sometimes get it right. But we see that he often does the wrong things and says the wrong things, doesn't he? The classic Peter moment is when he gives the great confession. And then right afterwards, Jesus has to rebuke him and say, Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. When he rebukes him for, going, for saying he's going to go to the cross. Like immediately afterwards, he says one thing, you got it right, the great confession. The next thing, get behind me, Satan. Right? That's Peter, isn't it? What is most important here is that Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring this change about by my own authority and my own power. What an incredible statement. What an incredible thing to give someone a new name that says, I am going to change you. And it is the only one who changes us and the only one who will change us, if you're a disciple, is Jesus Christ. Jesus calls them and he makes them what he calls them to be. Jesus intends to make his disciples into new men and new women who will do his will. And that's exactly what he's doing to Peter here. In other words, disciples are not self-made Christian figureheads, right? We don't make ourselves into disciples. Christ is the one who changes us. What Jesus says he will do for Peter is similar to what he'll do for every one of his children who are following him. And he will do this through his word as we are transformed into the image of Christ, into people who love and are able to do his will. Years later, Peter wrote this of you and me. Very similar statement to what Jesus said he would make of Peter. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus changes disciples into people who do his will. There's one more significant but subtle, sub, subtle indication that through Jesus, God was going to make all things new. God was going to change people. And we see that in this passage. Did you notice the word, the next day? The next day, the next day. And they didn't have a lot of punctuation that they used when they were writing. 
And so the next day is kind of like a marker separating little sections, right? But there's a little more to it than that. If you add them up, ultimately, what it equals to is seven days. And I think what Jesus, what, what John is trying to convey, remember he has an, a, another point he's making as well, on top of the obvious point oftentimes. What I think he's trying to say here is that Jesus, through Jesus, God is making a new creation. Just like at the very beginning in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I think through Jesus, God is making a new creation. I think these seven days are real, and, and I think they're, they're true. I think it was seven days that's being marked here, but I think there's also something also behind it. I think he's saying that Jesus is making a new creation. God is making a new creation through Jesus. And we even see hints of that at the very beginning of the gospel, don't we? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? God is making a new creation. A disciple is also someone who confesses the truth about Jesus. Throughout this whole section, we see numerous confessions of Christ that his disciples make. Right? And I want to touch on a few of them. Andrew confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. In verse 41. Messiah means anointed one. And the question is, who was anointed? Well, kings were anointed. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. And when someone was anointed, it was saying God was separating them to a particular office. The Messiah was the one anointed for a particularly great office. A particularly greater office than any other office, right? He's anointed as the true king of Israel, the true prophet, the true priest, to be our savior and our king and our Lord. He, re he represents all the expectation of the Old Testament that I was looking forward to. Here is the true and ultimate anointed one. Philip confesses Jesus as the one of whom Moses wrote about in the Law and the Prophets in verse 45. What an incredible statement. I mean, he truly spoke more than he understood, didn't he? <laughs> what are the Law and the Prophets? Well, they refer to the entirety of the Old Testament. Philip tells Nathaniel, we have found the one about whom the Old Testament speaks. The whole Old Testament is talking about him. Everything is pointing towards him. He is the fulfillment of all the expectations. Every verse, every sentence, every paragraph is speaking of Jesus. It's pointing us towards him and our great need for him. Here he is. He has come. What an incredible statement. It's all about him. So to miss Jesus when you're reading the Old Testament is to miss everything. It's all about him. Now Nathaniel confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, but notice that he does that only after Jesus overcomes his skepticism. In verse 46, he shows him that he has supernatural knowledge, right? By describing him as the one in whom there is no deceit. And then even greater way, description of his supernatural knowledge, he tells Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And we don't know what that means, but, but Nathaniel did. <laughs> And so he confesses. His confession is an indication that he saw who Jesus was in his statements that he made to him. And in verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Jesus overcame his skepticism, and he says, you are the Son of God. Right? The person who is going to come, 
The one they were longing for is not just a great person. He is deity. He is God himself. That's what that means. The very son of God. Like father, like son. In the same breath, Nathaniel also confesses Jesus is the king of Israel. To say he is the king of Israel means that he, king, he is ruler over all of God's realm of authority. The angel who foretold Jesus' birth spoke of his rule in this way. In Luke 1, verse 32 through 33, he will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He has every right over every one of us. Jesus, Jesus himself confesses about himself that he is the son of man in verse 51. And this is the preferred way that Jesus likes to call himself and, and speak of himself. The name he gives himself, right? Oftentimes. And probably because it didn't um, connect or wasn't e as easily misconstrued with all the triumphalist thoughts that were out there, right? And he is not only a son of man, notice he is the son of man. He is the representative, the savior of the human race. And there's none other who can save us. We are all to be confessors, aren't we? We are all to be confessors. Finally, a disciple is someone who is growing to see the glory of God in Jesus more clearly as they follow him. Jesus tells Nathaniel that he will see the glory of God more clearly in him as he walks by faith in verse 50 through 51. Now the words truly, truly here are a way of saying amen, amen. It is true, it is true, <laughs> right? What he's going to say, he, he, he begins by saying these things I'm going to say are true. As if to add double confirmation of what we already know is true. So Jesus communicates the very true point he is, reflecting, he is, he is referencing here through the story of Jacob's ladder in Genesis 20 verse 12. God came to Jacob in a vision with a ladder reaching from earth to heaven. And on this ladder, angels were ascending and descending. And the heavens being opened refers to a vision of divine matters. But here, instead of the angels ascending on Jacob, they'll ascend on the Son of Man. So what is the significance of this? What does this mean to us? Well, Jesus is our greater connection to seeing the glory of God. As he follows Jesus, he will see more and more of the greatness of the glory of God. Jesus will show him his glory if he continues to live by faith. God's glory is revealed through Jesus. That's the point here. And Jesus is really making a greater than argument. He's saying if Nathaniel was so impressed that he believed because of what Jesus said about him, how much more impressed, how much more greater will he see the glory of God as he continues to follow him. And this is really a promise for all of us, isn't it? Every disciple is promised as we follow Jesus, we will see more and more of the glory of God revealed through Jesus Christ. What an encouragement to continue to follow Jesus. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Keep your eyes on him. Keep following him. What was a common factor that was made in all these models of discipleship? What was the common factor in all these aspects of discipleship? Was it their personalities? Was it their abilities? Was it their charm? 
or their experience or their degrees or their doctorates? Well, clearly none of these things are factors that made them models of discipleship. Most of these individuals did not have charming personalities, and they were as new as you could possibly be. They were babies in the faith. So what was the common factor with every disciple here? The common factor for every disciple is that they saw Jesus. They recognized, they recognized that they needed Jesus more than anything. In other words, they believed in Jesus. And this is exactly the right place to be. If you hear this and respond by beating yourself up or feeling like a failure, you're missing it. It's not about you. <laughs> the answer is to look to Christ. You cannot save yourself. You can't do one good thing. You can't make yourself a disciple of Jesus. You must be amazed at Jesus Christ. Trust in him, repent, and adore him. Ask God to open your eyes to see him in all his glory. Oh Lord, give me eyes to see you. He is the Savior and you are the one needing to be saved. He is the victorious the risen, interceding, coming Savior of the world. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us, Lord, in giving us these examples of what discipleship looks like. But I thank you most of all for sending your son, Jesus, for showing us your glory, for giving us a glimpse of who you are. And God, we need to see you this morning. We need to see you in all your glory. I pray that you'd open up our eyes. I pray that you would make disciples of Jesus Christ today. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.